Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. My current view about Kant, uh, the reason he's, he's famous for leading academic processions to the door of the church and then not going in when everybody else went in. And I, I now have come to believe that the reason that he did that was because the church, in, the church in Königsberg was no longer a legitimate Catholic church. All right, so my, the title of my talk is uh, Freedom and the Moral Law in Kant, and uh, this is section one, Introduction. In the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals, Kant distinguishes a negative and a positive concept of freedom. The negative concept is the insight that our judgments and actions are not brought into existence by any cause or incentive originating outside our reason. Through this cognition, we think ourselves into a world of pure intelligence and conceive our proper selves as purely rational, as intelligence endowed with causality. The positive concept of freedom follows from the negative concept in the further insight that intelligent causality requires a principle of action and must discover it in the rational will itself. Deprived of every principle which would depend on an incentive of sense, we resort to the form of the will by itself, which is universal across finite rational nature as an existence determining kind. The identity of all rational beings in the form of the rational will implies a single unified good of rational nature, which implies in turn that every proposal for action of a finite rational being, that is every maxim, must be consistent with the good of all finite rational beings. Thus the positive concept of freedom is the moral law itself, formulated by Kant as a principle of universalizability Act only on that maxim through which you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law of nature. The necessity of an explicit cognition of negative freedom is the crucial premise in Kant's argument to the conclusion he is most concerned to establish, which is not that we are obligated to adhere to disinterested moral principles, but that it is necessary that we cognize this obligation which is the only condition under which we are able to make adherence to disinterested moral principles the end of all our rational activity. Kant's argument for disinterested obedience of a disinterested moral principle as our highest good is an argument for a certain sort of rational activity as the proper functioning of human beings as finite rational beings. This proper functioning requires explicit cognition of disinterested moral principles and a self-conscious intention to adhere to them for their own sake. Once negative freedom has been grasped explicitly, explicit cognition of the universal form of the rational will follows, along with cognition of its categorical command, which includes the explicit cognition that the command must be followed just because it is good to follow it. In the Critique of Practical Reason, Kant argues that we come necessarily to an explicit understanding of negative freedom because the ordinary exercise of our rational capacities 
includes the explicit cognition that we are subject to disinterested moral precepts. This last claim, which Kant calls the moral law as a fact of reason, is, I think, false. Whatever other source was possible for an explicit cognition of, suggest of, of subjection to disinterested morality, the insight of an ingenious human being, for instance, the effective source was a human claim that God had revealed his disinterested will for human beings in action-guiding precepts. Again, the problem for Kant's view is that subjection to disinterested morality is not a necessary cognition of rational activity as a natural kind. Part four, cognition of freedom in the conjectural beginning of human history. In 1786, Kant published an article which is remarkable for the facility and candor with which he supplies a heavily psychologized and thoroughly heterodox interpretation of the story of the fall in Genesis. His treatment is the more remarkable for its failure to recognize how much better a more orthodox interpretation might have supported his own theory of practical reason. In particular, his view that consciousness of subjection to disinterested morality is the condition under which we become conscious of our freedom. Beginning from the existence of two adult members of the human species, a man and a woman, Kant offers a, Kant offers a conjectural account of the first development of freedom from its original predisposition in human nature. As, at first, the human pair was, quote, guided by instinct alone, the voice of God, which is obeyed by all animals. But soon, quote, reason began to stir, and the sense of sight as the, least, as the sense least connected to instinct presented to the human gaze a prospective food source outside the customary human fare. Then reason, instituting a comparison, sought to enlarge its knowledge of foodstuffs beyond the bounds of extinctual, extinct, instinctual knowledge. That is, uh, Eve ate of the apple. Now, he doesn't say that, but that's what happened. This, says Kant, was man's first attempt to become conscious of his reason as a power which can extend itself beyond the limits to which all animals are confined. Partaking of fruit forbidden, as it were, by instinct, human beings asserted their first inkling of freedom of, their, of the freedom of their choice from determination to action by instinct. The attractiveness of the fruit in question, quote, was sufficient occasion for reason to do violence to the voice of nature and its protest notwithstanding to make the first attempt at a free choice, an attempt which, being the first, probably did not have the expected result. All right. Kant identifies God with the muted voices of instinct and nature, while the voice of reason struggling to express itself in propositions would seem to be identified with the blandishments of the serpent. But the story of Genesis in fact has God providing for the moral understanding of the first humans as beings who must be able to cognize disinterested good and act to achieve it as their final end. In the fact, conjecture, or allegory of Genesis, God provided for the first humans in exactly the way Kant himself might expect if conditions of their existence were to force them to understand that, in, that adherence to a disinterested principle was their higher good and their proper functioning and happiness. 
God did this by imposing a categorical prohibition on them whose content had to be arbitrary, but whose form of absolute prohibition was necessary to force them to cognize their freedom and therefore cognize the disinterested good of all their actions as long as they obeyed the single injunction God imposed. Unlike the content of the commandments delivered to Moses, the content of the only commandment placed on the first humans had to be arbitrary because their ends, dispositions, incentives, incentives, and inclinations were every one of them good. The tree in the middle of the garden, which became the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when they disobeyed, was no different from any other tree of its kind. The prohibition to eat of its fruit could not be made rational to Adam and Eve, except under the reason that everything good came from God, and God understood man's good better than man, which made man's obedience rational. The effect of God's prohibition was to cause the first humans to explicitly and self-consciously cognize their negative freedom, and that much more acutely in the face of an explicit transgression, an explicit temptation to transgress, as Milton represents in Eve's reaction when she sees which tree the serpent has led her to. And this is where she says, serpent, we might have spared our coming hither. And if the conversation had stopped there, it would have been a lot better, of course. She cognizes her negative freedom explicitly through an absolute prohibition, which she understands only very imperfectly. An imperfectly understood concept of absolutely not remains the way human beings first cognize freedom in a negative sense and begin the train of reasoning that leads them to cognition of disinterested obedience as their proper functioning and highest good. Five, conclusion. In the Critique of Practical Reason, Kant argues that finite rational beings divided between pure intelligent existence and an existence subject to laws of nature and sensibility which we do not control cannot by our own powers make our happiness harmonize with our practical reason. Yet reason decrees that happiness and morality must harmonize since both are necessary ends of finite rational nature. Without their harmony, we are left with the incoherence of the human personality, which Kierkegaard calls infinite resignation, a ceaseless performance of duty without the least achievement of a commensurable happiness. God is the only being adequate to affect this harmony of virtue and happiness and render the human personality coherent, so reason postulates the existence of God who will bestow on us in another life happiness proportionate to our moral excellence. However, if the effective source of explicit cognition, sorry, however, if the, if the effective source of explicit cognition of subjection to disinterested morality is necessary acceptance of a claim that God has revealed uh, moral precepts to humans as his will for them, then God is the foundation of disinterested morality in the order of knowledge as well as in the order of being. We know and know necessarily that we are bound to disinterested morality because of the contingent historical truth that God revealed disinterested moral principles to human beings. Thus God's work is present at the foundations of Kant's moral theory and not as Kant would have it as an idea of reason 
which must be brought in at the end to reconcile the conflict of duty and happiness after the theory has been fully worked out. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.